1: Brian Zemrak: Thanks for stopping by for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak. This is episode 443 of the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week, Paul Link is going to be joining us. You might remember him as Officer Artie Grossman from Chips, and he, of course, was in Motel Hell And he's got a one-man show that's out right now, uh, going around, you know, theaters, uh, doing performances. And on, let's see, February 17th, 18th, and 19th, he is going to be at the New Ream Theater in Moraga, California. And uh, the show is called It's Time. And he's going to talk about that, let us know about that, and all, of course, all the other things he's been in over the years. So Paul Link's going to be joining us here very shortly, right here on On Screen and Beyond. And, of course, I'm sure everybody was watching the Super Bowl. I'm sure there was a lot of you, anyways, that watched that. And that was a kind of exciting game. But uh, let's get into Remake Madness right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness. Well, the remake of Scarface has hit a bump in the road as the director has dropped out. Universal is in hopes to fill the spot in time to film this spring. Now, there's a lot of different movies that are hitting bumps in the roads. And uh, we're going to have some more coming up. I'll tell you about those in a minute. And the director of Arrival and, let's see, Blade Runner 2049. And that, of course, is Dennis. I'm going to mess up his name. I know Villeneuve. And uh, he's going to be directing the remake of Dune, And also the remake of Friday the 13th is... uh, that was supposed to start filming uh, shortly, uh, is now being suspended. It is actually canceled by Paramount. So no reboot coming your way. That's it. That's Remake Madness coming up next on On Screen be Beyond. Upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies. Liam Neeson's next action thriller, of course that's his thing right now, will be called Hard Powder where he plays a Colorado snowplow driver who goes after a drug lord after his son has been murdered. Liam Neeson and a snowplow. That's (laughs) going to be quite a thing. And Johnny Knoxville, he's going to be starring in a comedy called Action Park. Now, this is going to be following Knoxville and his crew as they design and operate their own theme park. Filming starts in March. And Brad Pitt, he uh, is going to be, of course, starring in War Machine. Now, that's a satire of the Afghanistan war with a focus on the people running the campaign. And uh, that's coming out. uh, uh, They don't say really yet where that one is, but uh, sometime this year, I I guess they're going to be bringing that one out. So. That's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond, taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming away as far as sequels. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6 1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Sequel City, a sequel to the Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg film Daddy's Home is uh, got the go. It's got the green light. Daddy's Home 2 will bring the two back together once again. So we'll see how that one goes. Uh, Obviously, it was good enough the first time that uh, everybody uh, decided to do it again. Sylvester Stallone will return in Escape Plan 2. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in the first one with him, is in Talks to Return also. And World War Z2 is now in limbo, just like uh, Friday the 13th. And, uh, of course, uh, Paramount is heading that one also. And uh, they've taken it off the list of films that they're making and uh, this one, though, they do say that they are in hopes that it will, it will come our way in 2018 or 2019. And that's it for Sequel City, coming up next on On Screen be on TV on DVD. TV on DVD, let's see, March 28th. You can look for Archer Season 7 to shoot its way into stores. And The Good Wife, The Complete Series, and Medium, The Complete Series, both arrive on DVD on April 4th. And Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Complete Series, it's available right now in stores. And that's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, Movies on DVD movies on dvd february 21st on digital hd jackie which uh, was nominated for three academy awards will land on blu-ray and dvd on march 7th and let's see 50 shades darker has uh, an estimated release of june so uh, it's just in just in theaters now so uh, that's when they're thinking that one will come out on dvd and blu-ray that's it for movies on dvd next on on screen to be on tv and entertainment time TV and entertainment time. Peter Capaldi, the current Doctor Who, will be stepping down as the 12th Doctor after this season. And actor John Hurt, the Oscar nominated star of The Elephant Man, has passed away at age 77. And also actress Barbara Hale, who will play Della Street on the TV uh, series Perry Mason. And of course, she was also the father of Alan Hale Jr., who was uh, the skipper on, you know, uh, the Gilgans Island show. She has passed away at the age of 94. And that's it for TV and entertainment time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's celebrity birthdays. <laughs> Told you so. Happy birthday! Happy <laughs> birthday! <laughs> Celebrity birthdays February 9th, Tom Hiddleston, 36, and Carol King, 75. February 10th, Elizabeth Banks turns 43. February 11th, it's Taylor Lautner, past guest here at On Screen to Be On Twice, turns 25, and Jennifer Aniston turns 48. And on February 12th, it looks like Josh Brolin turns 49. And February 13th, Jerry Springer turns 73. That's it for celebrity birthdays. And as far as listener birthdays, February 14th, Diana T. of West Bend, Wisconsin turns 56. So if you, a friend, or a relative are going to be having a birthday, be sure to send the information to us here at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. We'll all be wishing you a very happy birthday and, of course, like I said, uh, Diana and all the other people who were the celebrities, we wish you all a very happy birthday and many more. So that's it. That is it for Celebrity Birthdays. Next on On Screen and Beyond, he was Officer Artie Grossman on Chips. Gave us a lot of laughs on that show. And, of course, he was in Motel Hell and so many other TV shows he was on and guest appearances and everything. But now he's doing a one-man show. And on February seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth, it's time. That's his uh, one-man show. It's gonna be—he's gonna be performing it at the New Ream Theater in Moraga, California. We're gonna talk with Paul Link about that and find out all about it. Paul Link's next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Joining us today on On Screen and Beyond is an actor who has appeared in many TV shows, including St. Elsewhere, Murder, She Wrote, Happy Days, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and many other shows. But we will always remember him for his role as Officer Artie Grossman on Chips and as Sheriff Smith in the cult classic film Motel Hell. He has a one-man play called It's Time, which he will be performing on February 17th through the 19th, three shows at the Ream Theater in Moraga, California. It's Paul Link. Paul, welcome to On Screen and Beyond.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be on your show. I appreciate it very much.
1: Now, Paul, the one-man show, is, yes. is this whole thing, uh, doing this type of show, new for you, or is this something you've been doing w- with other shows that you've done? Or w- Give us the background I- on that. I- well,
0: actually, uh, it's this This is a part of my life that began after Chips ended, um, even though I continued to do other work in television or film. Uh, in 1986, my first wife died of breast cancer, oh, and uh, I only bring that up not to bring your audience down, but to point out that as, as her eulogist at the memorial uh, two and a half weeks later, I, I said some things. Uh, and uh, a director came to me and said, have you ever thought about doing a one-man show about what you learned loving and losing Francesca? And he mentioned Spalding Gray. I really didn't know much about the one-man arena, but I went and saw Swimming to Cambodia, the movie it, uh, that Jonathan Demme, Demme uh, directed. Mm-hmm. It came out that summer while I was contemplating this back in 86. And when I saw Spalding on the big screen, I went, you know, I could do that. I won't do it the way he does it, but I know how to do that. And so somehow I created this one man show called Time Flies When You're Alive in 87. And the initial intention of it was to do six performances, six Wednesday nights uh, to have catharsis and to share this story. Well, Talk about the way sometimes life takes you down strange paths. Um, after the second performance, the L.A. Times had come, and they wrote a review. Sylvie Drake, the critic for the theater critic, wrote a review that changed my life, basically. And next thing I know, I'm moving the show to a theater, the most prestigious small theater in L.A. They give me, they practically give it to me for a year so that I could perform every Wednesday night and every Sunday afternoon. Cause in those days, those weren't really very viable theater times in LA. No one used them. No one went to theater at those times. And I was able to sell out for a year. And then HBO got interested and, uh, Roger Spottiswood, the great director came, loved the show. And he wanted to direct it as a film. So they filmed my performance, the equivalent of Jonathan Deme's *Spalding Gray's Women in Cambodia. There's, you can still get it on iTunes and Amazon. It's called Time Flies When You're Alive. It is the one-man show that I created that started this whole thing off for me. And and literally, I did that play for 25 years. Not constantly. Mm -hmm. uh, First 10 years, a lot. But I traveled with it. I I took it all over the United States. I took it to Europe. Wow. Uh, It's being done right now uh, in Mexico as a two-character play in Spanish. It's being done in France as a two-character play in French. And I just um, sent a copy of the original script off to a fellow in Australia who's interested in doing it down there. And uh, it has its own life. Uh, I'm very proud of it. Um, When I performed at the National Hospice Convention in 1990, HBO generously made it available at cost to hospices around the United States. So, you know, something that was one of the most horrible things that can happen, you know, to have a, the love of your life at age 35, get sick and die at age 37, leaving, leaving me with, uh, three children aged six, three, and one. Um, the fact that out of something that horrific could come something, uh, positive was sort of the, uh, what's the right word for it? Just A residual, an unexpected residual benefit Mm -hmm. of having had such a horrible thing happen. And so now I did that, and then I became kind of known for the one-man show thing um, and worked with other artists on their one-person plays. I co-wrote and directed Charles Charles Nelson Reilly's Save It for the Stage, which you can see as a movie under the title The Life of Reilly. Uh, and we took that... I worked with Charles for 10 years on his show. And, wow. and it was a tremendous gift. You know, he saw the Time Flies When You're Alive on television and called me at a TV studio where I was being interviewed one day and said he wanted to meet me because he wanted to meet the, the guy that does one-man... As he said, I want to meet the man that does one-man theater better than me. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I didn't know of his background with Julie Harris and all that. But we became... Very close friends, and I co-wrote and directed his piece, and uh, I still miss him every day. Yeah. I tell you. And then I, uh, because of that, I got to work with Ben Gazzara on a one-man show where Ben played Yogi Berra. <clears throat> so I got exposed uh, to working in that form at a high level with really great people, and um, truly never thought I would have that next great show for myself, really. I mean, Time Flies" Real Life was such a a monolith in my life. Everything else, I wrote a second show called Life After Time, and then I did a piece called Father Time, and then I wrote a play called It's About Time. (laughs) If you notice, there's a theme there. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, I was working on this It's About Time, which is what I call my death and dying piece. And I couldn't, I just couldn't grab my, I knew what I wanted to do. I just couldn't, it just didn't work. I couldn't, you know, I mean, I did it. I performed it maybe 12 times and, and I'm sure people were entertained and got whatever they got from it, but it it wasn't what I was looking for. Working with Edward Edwards, this director on the death and dying show, he kept saying to me, you know, the real story, the real story is Christine. And Christine is my wife of over 25 years now, because obviously Time goes on, and what was once then is now then, <laughs> right. long ago then. So uh, I never could figure out how to tell the story of Christine because, as I said to Edward, that's a happy story. You know, who really wants to hear a happy story? And then uh, a fellow in L.A. offered me a theater for one night, said, I want to, you know, do a show. So it was a year ago now. We're coming up, and it's ironic because the uh, the – gig up in Northern California at the Ream Theater, February 17th, 18th, and 19th uh, will be almost a year. Oh, Cause I did it on February 13th, 2016 was the first time I ever went into any of this subject matter. And I didn't tell my wife what the play was because the first play was a really, truly a one-off. It was called it's Valentine. You'll notice again, <laughs> the theme. So, um, Um, and there's a reason for that. And Remind me to ask me and I'll tell you. Uh, but, uh, so she came to the theater. She says, are you doing your death and dying show? I said, yeah, nothing says Valentine, like, you know, death and dying, you know, but she, so we laughed and she came not knowing what it was. Well, it was a a tribute to her. The show was a tribute to her because after all she had done all the heavy lifting. Yeah. The kids are grown. Mm Mm-hmm. And I look at them as as healthy well-beings as I talk in my play, and I suddenly realize the the credit that she was owed and due. And I also realized for 25 years I had um, paid tribute to my late wife, and it suddenly dawned on me that it was more than time, or as I say, it's time to pay homage to the living wife because she's the one I loved life with. So I did this one night thing, you know, and the kids wrote letters and I read their letters and it was, it was just a a one-off. Then I didn't think much more about it. Although I know people really liked it and I thought it was kind of cool. I had directed a different play called a gambler's guide to dying. And it was in, it was in performance. So I was sitting there one day before a performance and I kind of looked at the stage and I looked and I went, Oh, look at that big wall there. You know, I need a wall to project in my show, because I use projections. Mm-hmm. I said, I could do my show on this set. So I went to the Ruskin Group Theater, the powers at be, and I said, I proposed an odd idea. I said, would you give me three Saturdays at 5 o'clock? There's nothing going on in the theater. Uh, the show's an hour. You know, there's no problem with an 8 o'clock curtain for the next show. And they went, because they love me and believe in me, they said, sure. So... Last spring I did three Saturdays at five, so I took the it's Valentine Essence, redid it, retooled it, workshopped it. It was unbelievable. Suddenly I'm doing this play and I'm going, My God, I was able to recognize in the moment of in the moments of being up there that I was actually back to the time flies when you're alive arena. Mm-hmm. Not that it's the same thing. It's not but it's in that arena, and by that I mean it's, it sort of transcends. It's a transcendental kind of experience for the audience because I take them on an emotional journey that's true and authentic, and they recognize it. So anyway, so the theater said, I mean, after one preview or workshop is what it really was, they came to me and said, we want to do this. Whenever you want to do it, we're in. So uh, I said, well, how about October? Because that'd be the, you know, I, I'm everything is dates to me in time. That'd be the 29th anniversary of the first performance of Time Flies When You're Alive. That sounds like it'd be a good time. Well, they missed it by a week, but last October 21st, we opened. And, you know, truthfully, great r- rave reviews, great reviews. But even more importantly, the audiences, the audience response. You know, I did 29 performances, and uh, I'm actually been I'm moving the show here in L.A. to another theater called the Pacific resident theater, which is one of the oldest, most established theaters in Los Angeles. And I opened them in m- mid March and I'll have a, I'll be there probably four or five months at least. And I'll do four shows a week. And, uh, but between, between now and then I get to come up your way and, um, do the show at your brother's theater at the ream. Now, Derek Zemrack was so kind to come down on a Saturday. He was always a big fan of time flies when you're alive. And, um, uh, he flew down, saw a five o'clock show, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and remember. And then turned he around. Did, yeah. and, oh, maybe he saw it. Even, yeah, I know. And turned around and went home. Yeah. I drove him to the airport. By the time he's at the, sitting at the airport, he called me and goes, Well, oh, actually, he took an Uber. He's very nice. I'll take an Uber. So he took an Uber. He's, he calls me from the Uber. He goes, I want to I do your show up north. I mean, he had an instantaneous, he got it. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be great. For us, it's the first chance we will ever have to take this quote on the road, so to speak. And we're coming to the Ream, and we're going to do a February 17th at 8 o'clock, February 18th at 5 o'clock, and February 8, 19th at 2 o'clock. So that's what's happening. And wow. uh, it's the show is 65 minutes in length, and basically what it's about is the enormity of life and the power of love. And I promise you, and I know this sounds so, I feel like, you know, as seen on TV or Ron, what's the guy's Ron (laughs) Popeil. I mean, it sounds so terrible, but this is the truth. So I'm going to say it even. And I, and if you know me, you know, I'm very self-effacing. I do not take myself seriously at all. I, I can't stand those kind of people, but I will tell you this. You come to the ring to a, to a performance of its time, I promise you, you will laugh. You will be moved. I'm going to probably cry, but you will be moved and you will come out with hope. And as people have said to me over and over again, you must continue to do this play. This play resonates in a way right now, because if there was ever a time where we all needed a positive message, where we needed to hear a man, um, love openly mm-hmm. and completely, a man who will take you into, you know, into the area of grief and to what that's all about. It's, um, you know, I wouldn't have expected it to be honest with you, but I'm so happy that I have this play to offer at this time. Now, no
1: pun intended. <laughs> now, now when you write something like this, Paul, uh, I mean, is it difficult to open up like that? First of all, I'm
0: a weird guy, and I don't. <laughs> I don't start. You have to laugh too hard. No, I'm kidding. So no, I am. I, I'm a weird guy in that I don't write it down. It's nothing written. Well, there is after I do it, right? Yeah, but it doesn't start with the written word. It starts with the oral word. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I would spend an inordinate amount of time in my jacuzzi, which is one of my favorite places to rehearse, or with my director at his house, just telling stories and just, you know, and, and sort of fleshing out kind of a concept. And for example, it's time, um, even in previews, I, I I realized that's missing a story. Let's add this story. Let's add this story. You know, and I'm very proud of the writing many people come up and say, they just, they just really appreciate the verbiage and, um, I just have a weird facility where I can cut and paste in my head. I remember things Mm -hmm. because I am a monologist at heart. So I theatricalize my life. And if you're going to theatricalize your life, you better pay attention (laughs) 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 to to, to it while it's happening because you may want to go back and, you know, in other words, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I, in Thanksgiving of 2015, um, our daughter at that time, our oldest daughter Rose was living in Oakland and we would come up for Thanksgiving. And as I say in the show, you know, we had reached a station in life where one of our children was actually hosting us for the holiday. You know, how great is that? And we were up there and we were at a restaurant on college Avenue called Swa Four. It's a Thai restaurant. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So we were having our palate cleansing time meal. And I was sitting there with the kids and uh had an epiphany, you know, because I saw them, they were a uh, Lily who was stuck in Boston, but the other kids were there and they were all grown. Now they were sentient adults and they were, you know, healthy, good citizens, loving, caring people. You know, they were all off the dole. They have impeccable table manners and I'm watching them. And then I looked at Christine and I suddenly got it in that moment, what she had done. And I turned to her and it was like, None of this is planned. This is life. And I look at it and I go, look, look what you've done. And she started to cry. Now, that became a piece in my show. It wasn't meant to be at the time, but because that was when I realized, you know, okay, it's time to honor her. You know, I stopped doing Time Flies because I realized until I could do a show for Christine, it wasn't fair for me to go out and talk about the deep love I have for my late wife mm-hmm. yeah, because you know, let's face it. Christine is the one who was there when they were hospitalized or when they got their periods or when they had problems mm-hmm. or when they needed birthday cakes made or, you know, and I, I think it's very important as we grow older and even when you're younger, but you don't maybe know it as much then it's really important to tell the people that have, helped you, that have loved you, that have guided you, that have mentored you, those people that make us who we are, it feels imperative to me to acknowledge them and tell them how much we love while we still are able to. Mm-hmm. And in essence, it's time is that. It's it's acknowledging Christine, as I call her, the, the beautiful and talented Christine Healy, for what she has done for the three children and I, the angel of love that she is, who appeared in that dark hour and lifted us all on her shoulders and carried us out of that darkness back into the light. Um, the woman who suggested in 68 that I take an acting class and change the apogee of my life by just saying that. The acting teacher who first took me under her wing. And when I did this wild scene, which I create again in its time, um, didn't throw me out of the theater. Didn't do anything but be supportive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Even when she didn't understand why she was being supportive. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there are, there are people. I know you have them in your life. Um, people sometimes they're your they're close friends. They're your they're your bait. But sometimes they're not. They're people that you just came together for a second in the, in the scheme of things, but they've changed the way they change your orbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I'm taking time to acknowledge a couple of these angels in this show, but See, <clears throat> you, you basically just... it's about, it's more stuff than that. That's why I say it's the enormity of life because I was a widow with three young children. And how do I get to where I am today? How did that happen? Mm-hmm. What was that like? And people who have had, uh, the unfortunate experience of having wives die or children die or close friends die or parents die or, you know, they recognize that this is an area that is not addressed. And, uh, you know, I just, I've been doing grief support work as a volunteer and I tried to shed a little light on that process in this show. Yeah. Now you gonna- have to emphasize that it's in the end, you're going to feel so hopeful and you're going to feel so human. And, and when the people come up and say to me after the show, may I give you a hug? I just say, I'm very sweaty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cause it's a lot of work, right? Yeah. Jeez. Now you're going to have to do one for your kids. Call it taking time. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> now, oh, um, uh, Considering you know this has been a lot you've done a lot of this now um when you first started acting, were you doing stage work or was it you know right to films and t v
0: Well, it all starts in the theater you know I mean not for everyone but for for where I came from, yeah, it started in the theater at s c you know, and I do talk a little bit about that in the show because I was you know I was a hippie i was you know, I was taking a lot of drugs and trying to sleep with as many young women as i could, you know, cuz it was the 60s, you know, 67, 68 <clears throat> and going to see the doors live as many times as i could. You know, that was the life i was living mm-hmm. and um and then i got exposed to this acting class and some things fell into, you know, things fell apart in certain ways. I lost my health. I was hospitalized. I was in an acting class and so i started in the theater, taking classes, doing some plays. Realized how much I loved it. Realized I wanted to try to maybe be an actor in my life. So right away, then I had focus somewhere to put all that in intensity, and um, <clears throat> did a lot of plays. Got a um, went to the Edinburgh Festival, uh, the Fringe Festival, where there's a major theater festival every August, and um, went there in '69 and '70 doing American plays. In the sixty in the '69 year group. Uh, Jim Bridges, the great Jim Bridges, who wrote The Baby Maker, Paper Chase, mm-hmm. um, oh God, what's the movie with Jack Lemon? The nuclear, uh, oh God, the one about the nuclear meltdown, China China Syndrome. Oh, okay, yeah. He wrote the guy was an amazing man. Anyway, he went with us, he and his partner, uh, Jack Larson, who was uh, Jimmy Olsen.
1: Yes, oh yeah. The, yeah, he's in, been on my show, you know, in fact. <laughs>
0: Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. When well, we lost Jack last yes. year, but or he died yeah. last year, but uh, they were with us, and I did not know at the time Jim had written the Baby Maker, which was his first feature with Barbara Hershey and Scott Glenn and Colin Dewhurst. and so he's you know we became friends. So he calls me one day. He goes, "I want you. I want you to be in my movie." <laughs> now you have to understand. I know nothing about being in movies. I've never <laughs> gone in a, on an audition. I'm not you know. So I went over to uh, meet Robert Weiss, who was the head of whatever the studio, you know, and, and a big guy and a big deal. And uh, he just signed this letter and it said, take this to SAG. And I was in the union. So Jim did a major thing for me. He got me over that big hurdle in 1970 when I joined SAG. and uh, So, but even then, I didn't really believe in making that whatever, you know, TV and film didn't seem like a possibility. So I basically went back to school, got a master's degree in, in theater. And even then I thought this is ridiculous. And I put all my, you know, my, all my furniture and my dog, my German shepherd and my herbal teas. And I got in my van and I moved to the, to New Mexico, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. basically because I thought, I never thought I'd have a chance in the world of making a living as an actor. And I saw friends of mine starting to appear on TV and I came back to LA and, you know, in 74 I started to go for it full bore and then it was you know all about getting TV and film but I always did theater I was always a member of a theater group I've never stopped doing theater it's for me it's all about theater
1: yeah now is it am I correct in what I've read on, on when I did my research that your father was the manager and uh, partner for Andy Griffith
0: that's very good research yes he and Andy were together they were partners best friends You name it. He was his manager for uh, over 37 years. Wow! My dad worked for Capitol Records as an A&R guy, Artist Relations, in the early 50s. And they had a, I guess you would call him an artist, yeah, a client, an artist, down in North Carolina called Andy Griffith, who had made this recording called What It Was Was Football. You ever heard that one? Yes, I have, yeah. Okay, so they did that, and um, my father was sent down by Capitol to sort of, you know, service the guy. You know, talk to him, befriend him. You know, just do artist relations. So my dad and Andy had kind of a kizmet. I mean, they looked at each other, and they really liked each other. And even though my Andy thought that my father had too many teeth in his mouth, he thought he, he called them tight teeth. <laughs> But he, you know, he, he he trusted my father. And so my father calls him and says, you know, I've been offered a better job at Columbia. I'm going to go to Columbia. And Andy said, well, I want to go with you. So they went to Columbia. And after about a year, my dad thought, wait a minute. He said, Andy, I don't want to work for anybody but you. You're going to be a big star. I'm going and so then my dad, I think it was 53 or 54, he became his manager. mm mm-hmm. And uh, so, then there was you know the face of the crowd, uh, No Time for Sergeants on Broadway, the movie of No Time for Sergeants, uh, the play Destry Rides Again, and then uh, in 1960 the Andy Griffith Show was going to go on the air, and we all moved to California. And uh, Andy and my dad did a lot of a lot of stuff together.
1: Did you ever get to work and, with uh, Andy?
0: I never did. You never did. You know, I, I uh, that's. That's all. You know, we could do a whole program on that because there's the, the monologue I never wrote that I, that I, that my father who died last June said you can't do, but I probably could do it. That was, I hate Andy Griffith. You know, it just, he just, it didn't work out. Let's just say that. He, mm-hmm. uh, he came and saw me in the theater and he was always kind of very supportive and even let me, I, I house, he bought Bing Crosby's estate in, I don't know, seventy Two seventy three, 73 and I lived there for six months. I care took it while he was away. And, uh, you know, the deal was you can stay here, you know, a tennis courts, swimming pool, right. acres <laughs> of private I mean, like, And so, and I had, the deal was free rent. You take care of things and you have a charge account at the liquor store. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we we had some unbelievable. <laughs> had some unbelievable parties, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine jeez <laughs> back in those days, you know, and you know look Andy was what a great actor and and one of the most important male figures in my life growing up, and he just you know unfortunately, watch face in the crowd and then you'll know who Andy Griffith was mm, yeah, and that's the sad truth of it, and uh he became uh uh not not a nice person and um. It killed my father because growing up, you know, really it was the hierarchy in my family with, and this will show you how screwed up things can be. The hierarchy in my family was, you know, it was my dad and Andy. And then, you know, my mother was under that. So they're really, you know, there was always the two of them and not that there was anything untoward about it. It's just that they were two guys who were on this role, you know, and it just kept happening and they just kept making more money. And getting more power, and getting more, you know, and they just lost complete sight of themselves and each other, and and their families. And you know, the, my, my dad wound up divorced. Andy wound up divorced several times. Hmm. Um, you know, just it was, hey, you know, it's Hollywood. What yeah. I can tell you, yeah.
1: Now, what about Chips? Uh, did you were they looking for you when you got that role? I mean, you did over a hundred episodes of that show. So,
0: yeah, uh, no, I was a regular on the show. I was I was Grossman for five and a half years. You know what happened was they um, they made the pilot, and th- this is uh, interesting. And it's, it all kind of connects if you think about it. Andy Griffith was going to make a show called. Uh, I won't say salvage, but it might've been a different title anyway. And I went in to read for it for a regular part on it. And it was so weird because my dad excused himself from the room. You know, so the whole thing was weird, you know, and I, and I read, read it and I, I didn't get it. You know, it was all right. I was unhappy, but I was struggling at that time to make a living. And, you know, I wasn't getting any help from Andy and, you know, anyway, but, Not that he owed me anything, but Mm -hmm. uh, I just was... The whole point is, next door, literally on the same floor, and literally right next door was the office for chips. And I knew about it because Larry Wilcox and I had competed endlessly for commercials Uh in the earlier 70s. We were always running into one another. And he did quite well in commercials. And uh, so I knew he had gotten it, and I remember seeing the Chips, you know, well, go on the door. And i oh, there's Larry's place. So anyway, then I watched the pilot of Chips. I thought it was the worst show. I remember thinking to myself, this is the worst show I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I said that out loud, I think. And uh, the, next, <laughs> the next day or two days later, I get a call that they wanted to see me. Hmm. And what had happened was I had done a movie called Moving Violation with Kay Lenz and Stephen McCaddy Mm -hmm. that only played for a week, but I had a really fun part in it. I played this cop who chased them, you know, like one of those chase things because they were like a little Bonnie and Clyde thing or whatever. And uh, I was, uh, I had this huge accident, you know. I was just funny. My my whole thing was a, a comic relief moment. Yeah. And Chips, at that moment, I was looking for a comic relief actor, and uh, the casting director remembered me. So I never auditioned for Chips or anything. I literally went in and met with everyone and made them laugh. Hmm. And uh, it was late in the afternoon. It was the sun was setting in the west, and the, the big guy, Rick Rosner, was sitting. The sun was behind him, so when I looked at him, I could barely i I couldn't see him because it was so bright. Mm-hmm. The sun was so bright. And I said at one point I said, You know, people are gonna people are gonna say to me, Did you meet Rick Ross? And I'm gonna say, Yes, I did. And he's a comic beam of light coming out of the western sky where well, they all almost fell on the floor, you know, 'cause and so the next thing I know I'm on the show.
1: <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and did you ever realize I mean, like you said, you you thought it was the worst show ever, yet it went on for years. I mean, well, I I knew what it was when I got it. And I went, okay, so now I
0: have a job. And ironically, they're only going to make two more because the, the initial order was thirteen. And I went, there's no way the show's ever being picked up. <laughs> it was Thursday night against Welcome Back, Cotter. You know, John Travolta was getting hot, right? Yeah. And I uh, I befriended Brody Greer who was in the show because you know, we'd spend time together and. I said to them, we went to Dupar's for breakfast one day. I said, you know what? If they would only move us, if they would, I'm praying, if they'll pick us up for the other 11 or whatever they were going to make, the other nine or 11, whatever the other part of the order was, I guess the other nine, and then move us to Saturday night Mm -hmm. into the old emergency time spot of 8 o'clock, we would be golden. And next thing I know, they, they in the paper, Chips has been renewed for nine more, and they're moving it to Saturday night. It was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And then we started to get a little momentum, and then Eric had his accident in the third year, I believe it was. And then it just went over the top. Then they moved it to Sunday night at 8 o'clock. So, you know, it's a funny thing. I run into people who now look at, you know, that show, that time period in such um, warm, sepia tones. You know, it's like... It's so nostalgic for many people. And there you know, many people now who grew up on that show who, you know, have their kids watch it on me T V. So it has its own following. We're gonna have a Chips reunion again next year here in LA and there'll people come from all over the world. But you gotta hold it in, in its proper place. I mean, if Star Trek has a convention you get like Twenty five thousand people. Right. Ships has a convention. You maybe get like four hundred. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or or six hundred. You know, it's not. I, I know what it was, but you yeah. know, I'm I'm really proud. Um, look, I look at it as like as an actor, as like a, a baseball player, like your nephew Reno, right? I want I I wanted to be on the team, right? So if you're if you get on a series, you're it's like you went to the show. You know, you're on the you're on a professional baseball team. It's mm-hmm. like it's like. So for five years, five and a half years, I was you know, on the show. I was at the show, and it was it was fantastic. It was. Uh, I, I mean, I I always knew it wasn't Hill Street Blues or you know a, a more significant show, but. I'm really grateful for having had that chance.
1: Yeah, it was a good, fun show. That's what it was. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now with we this, sold the California lifestyle pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> now with this remake of, uh, uh, that's going to be a movie, are they bringing yeah. any of you guys into that or at, at all? Do no, you, not at all. No, not at all. That's a shame. Not
0: at all, and I don't. That to me is a little weird. Uh, first of all, I think it's a
1: spoof. You know, kind of. Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: And I know Larry and Eric on Facebook were very unhappy about the trailer and they felt it was somehow tainting our legacy. Uh, it's chips. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Stonehenge. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm happy. It's, it's I, you know, it, I made great friends, Robert Pine, uh, lifelong friend, Bertie Greer, a lifelong friend, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the things about the show that I, you know, but it's chips. I mean, you know, they want to make a spoof of it, I can't take it that seriously.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, I know we're we're going on here more than what we said we would, but But see that's the problem if you have a guy like me on the show and I haven't let you get in one word. That's all right. We're here to hear you, not me. (laughs)
0: Well, it was your show. I kind of go on and on.
1: No, that's great. But I I, I do have uh, one more question before we get to the final questions. But, uh, uh, you know, you've done all kinds of other things, and uh, there's so many different shows you've been on. But there's one in particular that I was trying to remember what role you played. And I was looking, in 1975, you were in The Strongest Man in the World for Disney. Yes. Oh, what, yes, what was your character on that? I was trying to, i know I know the name was Porky, but I, Peter my character name was peter Porky
0: Peterson right and it's it's one of my favorite things I've ever done in film really uh, i uh, it was it, it was such an interesting ex- experience for me as a young actor that was my first year of of trying to make a living in seventy four that that I got that job in may of seventy four yeah and uh, my role was the the the, the conceit was, uh, you know, we're we're college students. There's a science experiment that went awry. Uh, a goat kicked something over. No one realized it. So basically, all of a sudden, there was this formula that made you unbelievably strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like, and so. The whole bit was we then challenged the greatest weightlifting school <laughs> <laughs> to a contest because we had this secret formula, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, anyway. And of course, I'm one of the first lifters, Peter Porky Peterson. <laughs> and I, I, I get down to the pullet to lift, and uh, I, I, I don't realize that the I don't have the the, the, the special stuff. I, so I'm just me. And it's these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds I'm trying to lift. So I pull and I pull and I use all my might and then I pull hard and I stand up and my arms stretch the length of my body, you know, all the way down to the ground. So in other words, they had a special deal where I went in and they took uh, casts of both arms. Yeah. So when I pulled up, you know, it was like uh, my hand was inside. Anyway, and, but when I got to do that scene, the greatest character actors in Hollywood were in that audience. Mm-hmm. So I got to do this, you know, extended bit for them. It was fantastic. Yeah.
1: yeah. Disney at that you know, time I mean, used to have a lot of, like you say, a lot of great character actors in their films. You know, that well, one, you look the world's at, greatest athlete and all all those yeah, other ones. If they were you
0: look it. at the faces, you can't even believe it. Yeah. I mean, the... Um, I mean, in that scene was Eve Arden. Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of the, uh, Cesar Romero. Wow. Uh, Fr- uh, Fritz Feld. Mm hmm. Yeah. Do you remember Fritz Feld? Oh, yes. Yeah. Got, yeah. I mean, and you just look at all, and, and, and that's just the beginning of it. It just went on and on. Uh, it was phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, to, to me, to have all their attention and get to do my thing was, it was great. Mm-hmm. It was I felt really. As a young actor, you need to have some of those where you, you know, score. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. You know, where you come through. Yeah. Well, uh, but of course, acting changed so much. You know, that style of acting now, you know. Right. I don't know how many people ever get it, ever, a chance to do anything like that anymore because it's also don't act, don't do anything.
1: Yeah. Unless you do, the better. Yeah, and a lot like, of it's dark say, now. Lot, say that again? A lot of the movies are dark. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. uh. It's just, it's like you say, it's different now. But, yeah. But, uh, Paul, I'd like to finish up with two final questions, taking us away from your appearance. Uh got to remind everybody, you're going to be at the Ream Theater on February 17th, 18th, and 19th for three shows, and uh, you'll be doing It's Time, a one-man play, and it's going to be a great show, so everybody should be sure to go get uh, tickets for that. And uh, But the final two questions, taking us away from your acting and everything else you've done, when you sit back and relax, what are your favorite TV shows that you watch now and of the past? And what are your favorite movies now and of the past?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think it, as far as the movies go, it's hard not, you know, there's certain movies that come on, you just, like The Godfather. hmm yep. Or oh, they have this new thing called The Godfather. Uh, and they put them all together. Have you seen that? It's like, a like marathon, nine hours long. Or <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't know what it's called, but it's it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, or Goodfellas, or you know, it, you know, any of those. Uh, the current movies, uh, I think Moonlight is just incredible. I just thought it was the most beautiful film, mm-hmm. and uh, I liked Arrival very much as well.
1: Yeah, I've, I haven't seen that one yet.
0: Yeah, but, uh... interestingly enough, Arrival was based on a book by a guy named Ted Chang. And if you read Ted Chang's book, I believe in the preface he says how for years he tried to figure out how to tell the story. And it wasn't until he saw Paul Link's Time Flies When You're Alive. Really? In a theater that he knew how to tell it. Huh. Which I'd forgot about until someone, you know, who loved the movie so much went and found the book and then sent me this on Thanksgiving Going, do you realize you're the inspiration for this? (laughs) But that was very kind of sweet, but, uh, yeah. And you know, TV shows, uh, I I'm burning out on TV. I have to say it. I think there's been a lot of great stuff on TV and you know, I just, I feel like we've been winding down on the affair and I just feel it's totally lost its, its way. I'm not sure about Homeland this year. We'll see how it goes. Um, but there've been so many great shows. I mean, The Wire,
1: The Shield, um, The Sopranos. Yeah. What about grow- uh, you when know- you were growing up? What, what What were you big on when you were a kid?
0: Man from Uncle. Ah, Love yes. Man
1: from Uncle. <laughs> yes. Love Man from Uncle.
0: Uh, Outer Limits. Mm-hmm. I watched way too much TV. I should be. Uh, they should definitely take my brain. Uh, and because I was one, you know, I was of that age. In other yeah. words, I was born in 48. You know, my father had one of the first TVs, you know, and I was plopped in front of the TV, you know, watch Kate Smith, you know, and. Uh, all those early shows. So, I mean, I and and then my dad's business was television. So I, you know, grew up on it. I used to read the, I used to read the Nielsen ratings as a 13 year old, 14 year old. (laughs) I was fascinated. I used to read billboard, billboard and Mm Cashbox. You know, it was like, uh, I never thought I'd be involved in the business at all, but I was always fascinated about the way the the viewing trends were, you know, and, and, and what worked. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not too much on network television anymore. I think most of the stuff is the Netflix stuff. Love a lot of the English stuff, mm-hmm. broad church, you know, stuff that this is, you know, I just, just saw an Icelandic show that was very good. Mm. It's interesting, yeah. but, uh, you just, you know, I like the detective genre stuff, you know, I like that
1: stuff. Yeah. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much for sharing this time with us. And uh, like I said, everybody should be heading out on February 17th through the 19th if you're in the uh, Reem Theater area in Moraga, California, and check it out. It's a beautiful theater. they got a nice uh, museum with all kinds of memorabilia from the movie and TV world. And uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing with us.
0: Thank you. I'd like to say that I encourage you all to come out to the ream, I think as... One reporter once said, if you're human, you'll be interested. Hope to see you at the ream.
1: That's Paul Link. Big thank you going out to Paul for joining us and sharing those things with us here at On Screen and Beyond. I want to thank him so much. And uh, if you are in the Moraga, California uh, area or San Francisco area, Bay Area, that whole area right there. Uh, If you don't know where the New Ream Theater is, you definitely want to check it out. It's in Moraga, California, uh, and you can get there. And they have a great museum with some really cool stuff. I mean, I've been there, and it's it's, it's just a real nice place. And it's one of those old theaters and everything. And uh, it's uh, actually in the, the main theater, the big one. There's a stage, and they actually have uh, comedians and different kinds of shows coming. And Paul Link is going to be doing his one-man play there, and it's called It's Time. It's a great show. Be sure to check it out February 17th, 18th, and 19th at the New Ream Theater in Moraga, California. So thanks, you Paul, for joining us. And let's see, that is it. We are going to be wrapping up this episode of On Screen and Beyond and uh, then we are still working on Bonji Bear in the Kingdom of Rhythm. Uh, I've been writing more songs. Just it's going to be loaded with songs, so get ready, you know, for that. Uh, right now, they're saying that they are looking at probably. I'm guessing the fall, but uh, not sure. Uh, they'll we'll figure that one out when the animators finish. <laughs> so, anyways, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen. And beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care.